Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludi is entitled, The Gospel Tear. The King of France had his musketeers, and the King of King has his gospel tears. This message pounds home the beautiful, awe-inspiring, life-transforming, soul-satisfying, God-exalting reality of the gospel message. And by knowing, believing, and reckoning the truth of the gospel, we become the messengers of this glorious good news. Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Eric Ludi. The Gospel Tear. This is a term that I don't know that I've ever heard anyone else use. I've used it for quite a few years. Sure has to be someone out there. It's like the equivalent of the musketeer. Uh, Well, you know, the king of France may have had his musketeers, but the king of heaven has his gospel tears. And we are the ones that are trained with sword in hand to wield that sword of the spirit, which is also known as the word of God, effectively. The word of God is sharp. It is able. It is able to pierce through darkness. It is able to slice through deception. It is able to bring clarity where there's fog. And if there's one desire I have this morning is that clarity would come where there's little fog banks in your soul. If you've grown up a Christian in American Christianity, there are fog banks in our soul. We can look at the word of God, but we can't quite comprehend what God is about. We look at the the church in Acts, and it has no relation to our church today. We honestly have no idea what was going on back then. Sure, Sure doesn't relate to our version of Christianity today. It's a fog bank. I would like to propose that the same God that started the church is the same God that is supposed to be at the helm of the church today, and God doesn't change. His church isn't supposed to reveal some newfangled idea today. He's supposed to reveal the exact same manifold wisdom of God as it was revealing back in its beginnings. So let's figure out what in the world the church is supposed to be up to so we can know what our part of that is and how God is supposed to transform us first and then we all join together as transformed lives. I had someone yesterday that was saying, you know, they, I asked them where they were going to church. You know, just one of those classic Christian questions to ask people. And they said, we're not going to church right now. And I actually understand what they were talking about. I understand the discomfort in modern Christianity. It's like, and this is what they said. We want to see the real thing. And we just don't know where to go to find it. We want to see believers that actually mean it and don't just go through the motions. When they sing songs about God's greatness, they actually are tasting God's greatness practically in their lives. Isn't that an interesting statement? I was like, I know exactly what you're saying. The gospel tear. We could say the gospel tears. This is all of us. You may not feel like much of a gospel tear, but God wants to make you one. All right, we're going to attempt to wrap our arms around one of the most gargantuan ideas in Scripture. Now, when we talk about the gospel, it doesn't sound that big, okay? For most of us, it's, well, Jesus died, and he took the penalty of our sins so that we could live with him for eternity. What else is there? Well, there's a lot more, and that's the answer that I have to give today. There's a lot more. There's a lot more that Jesus Christ came to do. That's a part of it, and I don't want to diminish it at all. It's a very important part. But there's a lot more. In Exodus 25, 
we have this very interesting sequence of events where God has spoken to Moses about how to build a tabernacle. And then he refers to it, and let them make me a sanctuary. It's a dwelling place, a set-apart place. A sanctuary is a place that is sanctified unto one, unto God. It is set apart. It is removed from the, from the blemish of human touch. It is separate from all that is unholy. All that is unholy, it is holy. It is set apart. So let them make me a sanctuary, a holy place, that I may dwell among them according to all that I show thee after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall you make it. And look that thou make them after their pattern which was showed thee in the mount. This concept is referred to oh, close to 10 times in Scripture. In fact, in this message, when you... Uh, this message comes out online. It'll have a downloadable audio file with, with the notes included. In the notes section, I actually have three appendices in this. This is quite the notes uh, that I put together for this. Three appendices. The third appendice, appendix C, is about the concept of shown in the mount. Okay, So I have all the scriptures going through scripture where whenever they're building the tabernacle or the temple of God, there is a pattern that they are to hold to. They are to show strict adherence to a pattern. Why is God wasting his breath if they're just going to go off and build a temple or a tabernacle the way that they want it to be? God is saying, build for me a sanctuary. Make it according to this design. Remember Ezekiel? A man of God literally comes to Ezekiel with a measuring rod in hand, and he measures out this temple. It's called the Ezekiel Temple. Most people would refer to it as the Heavenly Temple. Measures all the, the dimensions, shows them the entire house, and then says, now show this pattern, this architectural design to the people of Israel that they would know their sin. Know their sin? What is, this, what is the design of a temple, the pattern of a temple, the measurements of a temple have to do with people and their sin? It's because the temple is perfect righteousness. It's Jesus Christ. It is the way he is. It's the way a man ought to be. And so when we are measured and put up next to the perfect temple, the dwelling place of God, Jesus came and he was the dwelling place of God. He was the perfected sanctuary. He was also the gospel on two feet. He demonstrated something to the earth. He lived out the gospel. He is the gospel. He is the way to salvation. He is the great man of salvation himself. And so... We're just going to start to build on this idea that there's a pattern. There's a pattern for how you ought to be. And Paul sort of unveils the great secret in the New Testament. He says, do you not realize this, church, that you are the temple of the living God? I mean, to a Jew, that is flabbergasting. God would never taint himself by, by entering into mere men. But that's the gospel. The gospel is he is now making not just a tabernacle built by human hands, but he's making you his tabernacle. He's making you his temple. He is going to dwell and make himself a home and actually come to this earth. It says, that I may dwell among them. Emmanuel, God with us. God in you, God with us. Romans 1, 15 through 18 so as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel 
to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. I remember Charles Finney discussing the fact that before he, he grew up in a Judeo-Christian culture, and so you know, he had a Bible in his desk, and the reason he had a Bible in his desk is because he was a lawyer, and Blackstone's commentaries was always referring to the Bible, so he had to keep a Bible as a reference. And so he had this Bible out on his desk one day, and one of his business associates was coming in for a meeting, and when the business associate, associate walked in, he realized, Charles Finney realized he had a Bible on his desk, so he quickly took it off his desk and hid it in a drawer. I mean, how embarrassing to be found with a Bible on your desk. And he said there was a palpable sense of shame when it came to the ideals of Christianity. There was a palpable sense of shame associated with this notion of the gospel. It's really strange. By the way, that's an evidence of a supernatural realm. Because you're not ashamed of hardly anything. You know, you could have your sports illustrated on the, the desk. You don't care. Why would that matter? But a Bible? Yeah, let's hide that thing. Paul makes this declaration that he is not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why? For it is the power of God unto salvation. To everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. Now I have to stop there because we've all heard this verse. For it is the power of God unto salvation. It's literally God coming in and through whatever this gospel is and bringing about a mighty movement within your soul, within your mind, within your heart, and shaping you, changing you, altering you, correcting you, so that you can be as you ought to be. He rescues you. This gospel is not just a mere statement of a few words. This is a construct. This is a way that brings you, if you believe, it brings you from death into life, Christians are those who are no longer dead, but now live. They are supposed to be alive. We have so many Christians in Christianity today, let me put quotes around it, Christians in Christianity today that are still dead. They never found life. Let's finish this and I'm going to make a comment on that. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Another way of saying that is the justified shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness. The wrath of God is coming upon all that are not justified by the blood of Jesus. The gospel is so utterly critical for us to realize how it is that we are saved. Now, one of the things that Leonard Ravenhill used to discuss is the idea of New birth. He said that's technically what the Bible refers to it as, that, that we're, we as Christians are the twice born or the second born. In other words, we were born the natural way, but now we must be born again, a spiritual way. And he said that most Christians, their entire new birth experience took about three minutes. And they repeated a prayer, they said something really quick, and you know, whoever was leading them through it patted them on the back and said, you're fine. It's like a true-false test was laid before them. It said, did Jesus Christ die on the cross? True. Did Jesus Christ rise from the dead? True. Did Jesus Christ ascend to be with the Father? Is he going to return for his children someday? And we're like, true? We're in. That's all that's needed. You just need to believe these basic things, and God pats you on the back and says, you're fine. Next. 
And so he likens it, he says, he talks about the formation of a baby within and then the birth process is rather extensive. And one of the illustrations I was thinking of this week was since we were talking about a temple and there's a pattern for how something needs to be built that most of us have a little lean-to. It's like two pieces of plywood that lean against each other, and we get underneath it to protect ourselves from the winds and the rains. And when the rains fall, you know what? This is a lot better than it used to be. You know, the rain used to hit us and pelt us you know, directly. Now we're under our little you know, uh, pieces of plywood. We're doing fairly well. However, when the wind starts blowing sideways, we can't figure out where that draft is coming from because we read the Word of God and we're not supposed to have that draft. We're supposed to be impermeable. We're supposed to be strong. Instead, this thing every now and then collapses on us, and we have to reconstruct it. You know, a little wind blows, and these bumps all over our head. This isn't a very comfortable environment that we're living in, known as Christianity. Well, I would like to propose the thought that you may not quite have Christianity. That isn't what it is. It is something stout and grand and epic. Precept upon precept. This, this statement comes from, uh, oh, there's a scripture missing in there, but it's, it comes from, uh, what is that, Isaiah? Uh, where it's talking about laying precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little, there a little. And it's basically saying this is how it must be, where we have one idea laid upon another idea, upon another idea, upon another idea. When you're building a temple, first of all, they were to lay the costly stones in the ground. You know that the foundation of the temple was actually costly stones? Huge stones, and they had to be hewed just perfectly? I mean, they spent money on the foundation. We give the cheapest material to the foundation. Could you imagine choosing uh, uh, diamonds and you know, special rubies you know, for your foundation to your house? No one's gonna see them. Why would you put those there? When God builds, he puts the most precious things in the foundation because he intends it to last for all time. God never intends this structure to collapse, so he puts the most precious things in the foundation. That's what we're gonna walk through now. We're gonna lay precept upon precept. When we start talking about the gospel, we're gonna lay a foundation, and then we're going to build upon it. And what you see as the end result is known as the temple of God, or the picture of Jesus Christ. So we are building a temple according to a pattern as shown in the mount. God has revealed a pattern to the saints of God, and it's in his word. However, when we are dealing with the issues of salvation, when we're dealing with the issues of the gospel, we take one little piece out of what you're gonna see, and we get excited about it, which there's good reason to get excited about it. However, we're not proving workmen approved. You can get really excited about building a little kitchenette in your temple. However, if you don't have a foundation and you don't have a roof over that little kitchenette, it's going to have some difficulties in the future. It would also be nice to have a little water and a little sewage, you know, so you can get water and drain it as well. There's things that we're like, oh, I didn't think about that. God does think about these things. God is establishing a structure. He has an, an intention for how the human life is supposed to live, for how the human body is supposed to operate. And so when we come to him, he tells us exactly what to do. So we're going to walk through two parts. Part one, the way to the Father. Part two, the way of the Father to us. And the reason we're going to walk through it this way is to sort of create a distinction between two very, very significant things. 
In the New Testament understanding, there are two baptisms. The baptism of John unto repentance and the baptism, which is also the baptism of water. And then we have the baptism of fire or the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which, you know, scares a lot of people in the conservative camp. It's like, well, we don't, we're not interested in that baptism. Well, that is how Jesus gets in you and makes this whole thing work. And so William Law, his famous statement was, Jesus didn't just purchase forgiveness at Calvary. He purchased Pentecost. He purchased the gift of God imparted so that we would have all the machinery necessary to live out this life. And so we have two parts. Part one is the way to the Father. There is a breakdown in your relationship with the Father. And the Father has everything you need for life and godliness. Everything you need for salvation. How in the world are you going to get there? He's holy, you're not. And unless you can perform perfect righteousness, you cannot get to the Father. Where does that leave you? Cut off for all eternity. And by the way, I'm not going to go in that direction today, but being cut off for all eternity, since you are an eternal being, is very, very serious stuff. So the way to the Father is extremely significant in understanding the gospel. And so that's where we're going to start. Oh, here's our scripture with Isaiah 28.10. For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to start laying precepts. Part one, the way to the Father. 15 building blocks of being firmly established in Christ. The grammar in the Bible is not accidental. Paul will say, in Christ, and then he'll also say, Christ in you. And we just oftentimes assume that, well, maybe, you know, the translation is just sort of being creative and just giving a new take on it. Actually, it's very, very purposeful. There is a big, significant difference between you being in Christ and Christ being in you. You being in Christ is part one of what we're going to talk about. Part one, if you miss part one and you try and skip to part two, part two doesn't work. Part two is non-functional. When you go after the end result of the cross, and you say, I need power, I need life, yet you don't allow part one to remove you from the equation, to stick you under, as it would be, under the water and to see death to the old man, to see a denial of self, well, guess what? Part two is mangled, which is what many of us have seen in this generation. We've seen people that are after part two, they're after the baptism of fire, but their old man is still living, and what they have is still governed by the flesh. We need to walk through this properly, precept upon precept, and let God deal with us in the process. So this is 15 building blocks. Number one, and if you try and skip number one, you can't even get number two. This is important. You must know your need. Can't tell you how many Christians are led into Christianity without fully understanding the fact that they even need Jesus. That they even need this gospel. They don't even comprehend the fact that they are rebels against the throne. They are literally standing in defiance against the living God. And they are spiritually cut off. They have no hope. There is only one hope, and that is Jesus Christ. The illustration that was always used in the Welsh Revival is of, man, of a man sinking in the vast seas. In other words, he's out in the wide ocean without any buoy. And the waves are crashing over him. And up to this point, before you see your need, you're still drowning. However, it's called the provenient grace of God that works upon a man's soul, and it awakens him. 
whoa, I'm, I'm lost at sea. Help, help. You're looking for just something to hold on to and the waves are crashing over you. You're starting to gulp down water. You're not feeling too good. Imminent death. You need to see your need because Jesus responds and can only respond to those who recognize that they need him. So here's Romans 3. You'll notice that this whole thing started out in Romans 1, and it was talking about, I am unashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. That's Romans. God, Paul is giving the gospel of Jesus Christ in Romans. He's saying, okay, let's take our time and let's build a case here. And he is building this gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. In Romans 3, now we know that what things soever the law says, it says to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may come guilty, become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It's one of those classic lines that, you know, we throw around a lot. You know, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Well, just because you've heard these things before, I want you to hear them with fresh ears and recognize that this is the foundation stone. These are the precepts upon precepts that must be established in each of your lives. As we go through this, you're going to see that there are certain precepts that were skipped in your development. It doesn't mean that what you have isn't real. It doesn't mean that it's, you know, faulty. It just means that there needs to be a shoring up. It's like having a, a, a puzzle you know, that's supposed to have 100 pieces and you have 80 of them. It's not that what you have can't be guessed at. So I see where they're going with this picture. But there's some key things that are needed to really fill it in. Our mouth must be stopped and we must become guilty before our God. We are guilty, but we must become guilty in our understanding. We are at odds with the king of the universe. And unless something changes that, We are headed in a wrong direction for all of eternity. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so if you're ever walking through the gospel with someone, one of the most important dimensions to awaken is the righteousness of God, the law of God. And you can say, the law of God, why would that be important for anyone? Because aren't we under grace and not under the law? We are under grace as a result of recognizing that we have failed in regards to the law. That leads us to one called the Messiah. And he puts us under a new law, which is the law of the spirit of life in Christ instead of the law of sin and death. However, we must stand before the law of sin and death and recognize that it is a judge and a jury against us. And we have proven faulty and a failure before the living God and his requirements to enter into his presence. We can't stand. We are guilty. And it's not just things like, well, I didn't steal. Yeah, but you've stolen the glory from God and you've usurped you've a position. And you have caused other people to look upon you instead of upon him. Well, I haven't committed adultery. Yeah, you committed adultery by going after other gods, other lovers in this life instead of your God. You have committed crimes against the most high God at the most depth of the, of the soul level. Number two, you must see your savior. So you must see your need, but then you must see your Savior. What good does it do to see your need if you don't have an answer? Now, some people look at this as the ends of Christianity, seeing your Savior. Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. Jesus said unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. 
He is the lone solution for the human soul. There is no other. And you'll, you'll notice that Eric does not back down on that. Yeah, I know how politically incorrect that is. It's truth. God said it. All I'm doing is repeating what he's saying. There is only one way to the Father, and I'm not being loving by trying to encourage people to look in other directions. The only way I can possibly love someone is to lead them to this truth. I must lead them to the fact that Jesus is their Savior. And he, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins. He's the just satisfying element that deals with our problem. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Number three. This is an interesting step because you know that you have a need and you know that he's the need meter. Now you must believe. Well, don't you believe just by knowing that he's out there? Isn't this a true-false test? Did Jesus Christ live 2,000 years ago? And you could say, I, I think he did. I believe that. That's not what belief is. That's mental assent. That, that's, mental, that's scientific knowledge. This is different. When the Bible's talking about belief, in Romans, it, it unpacks what belief is. And it talks about you must know something to be true. And so that's part of it. You must know that it's an actual thing. But then you must reckon it and take it unto yourself as fact. If it's true, like we've used the illustration, if there's a $20 bill sitting over there on the, on the stage, and God says, yeah, that $20 bill is yours, and so then you go about your life, and, and someone says, do you have $20? And you go, well, no, not in my pocket. Uh, well, didn't God give you $20? Well, yeah, he did. It's sitting on the stage. Well, why isn't it in your pocket? Well, I just know it's there. Isn't that all that's needed? Is that I know it's there? No, you have to actually go and pick it up and stick it in your pocket. And the third part of believing is you actually yield to God what he says he purchased, and which happens to be your body, by the way. He purchased you. And so if you truly believe God and you believe his words, then you don't just know about it, but you reckon it is true and you respond to it. You must give him what is rightfully his. So let's believe in our Savior. John 3, 15 through 16, 18, and then 36. By the way, in the appendices and the notes that you can download this week, I have the book of John baked down into all the scriptures that talk about believing. It is one powerful meditation because the book of John is like all about believing and it is very powerful to see how significant this plays a part, what role this plays in a believer's life. I mean, we're called believers. Doesn't it make sense that the thing we do is believe? And yet most of us, what we do is we know about, we're not knowers, we're not scientific test takers, we are men and women that have reckoned and taken it and then given God his rightful due. That whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He that believes on him is not condemned. But he that believes not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. Sounds really harsh, doesn't it? That's why we're like, okay, you need to believe. This isn't supposed to be complicated, but let's not skip over it. Let's not just say because you're in a church building, everything's fine. These are precept upon precept. If you want the substance of heaven, you must come into alignment with truth. And I know that this is very basic, but let's not skip the basics. Because sometimes we hurdle over things feeling like, oh, that must be, mean that. No, it actually means you stop here and you take it. If Jesus really is your salvation, you must grab a hold of it. And you must give him what is rightfully his due. He that believes on the Son has everlasting life, and he that believes not the Son shall not see life, 
but the wrath of God abides on him. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believes not shall be damned. Now, there's an interesting statement here that has caused a lot of divisions within the church over the years. And you could say, why in the world are you bringing that scripture up, Eric? Well, it's a good scripture. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. What, that, what does that sound like? Well, if you're not baptized, well, then you can't be saved. Well, this is what's interesting about this scripture. Baptism, when you understand it biblically, is an immersion in something. He that believes and is immersed in Christ, as you will quickly see how, what significance that has. It means to be in Christ. And so baptism is merely the immersion into something. And in this case, it's Christ. So you must believe and be immersed in Christ Jesus. And that's what saves you, is being in Christ, which will make a lot of sense very soon. It's not going underwater and coming up that saves you. It is believing, yielding yourself to this reality and entering into Christ. That's what it means to be baptized, to be immersed. Now we symbolize that in and through our baptism. And we say, I am in Christ, my old man is dead and now I live unto a new management, Jesus Christ. Number four, oh, very popular word nowadays in Christianity, repent. You know what? If you don't repent, you don't have the substance of the kingdom of heaven. You have to repent. Now, it's interesting because I'm putting repent in at a very interesting spot because I haven't even gotten to the point, like, what's next here? Get in Christ. And you're like, well, I should get in Christ and then repent. Turn away from all things prior and turn unto Christ. Okay, this is the way you could look at it. You're headed over a cliff. This is in the direction of darkness. You didn't even know you were headed over a cliff. And then suddenly, God's grace begins to move upon you and you begin to realize where you're headed in your condemnation. You gulp a few times and realize, I need a savior. And then you begin to realize that it's Jesus that's your savior, but your back is still turned to him. And then you're like, okay, he's the one I need. He's the one I need, but what practically do you have to do to go after Jesus? You have to turn from everything you hold dear. You have to turn from your life as you know it, the direction, the pursuits of your life, and you turn and make it tactical, kingdom-altering decision. Not the kingdom of darkness anymore, but you say goodbye to that. And you turn towards the truth. And in turning towards something, you're turning away from something else. Well, we don't like to hear that part. I don't want to have to turn away from anything. I want Christ to come over here. I don't want to have to turn around and give up this. You can't have Christ then. It's that simple. If you want Jesus Christ, you turn from your deeds of darkness. You turn from your wickedness and you say, make me new. <clears throat> Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. Doesn't that actually sound like there's a condition to your sins being blotted out? I know that we believe that there's no work of righteousness that you can do to be saved and to be forgiven. However, there is an awakening within your soul and in the process of turning into Christ, this is how it works. There is a turning away into Christ, and when you come to Christ, you are changed, converted. You are altered, and as a result, God is able, his grace is now able to reach you. When the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. Oh, doesn't that sound nice? Some of us have never felt the times of refreshing that come from the presence of the Lord. Repent! Nice John the Baptist line there. 
know, that's exactly what the message was, preparing the way for Jesus Christ. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. We're standing right here. The kingdom of God is right here waiting, arms open wide. But you must turn into him. Number five, there are certain things we're going to go through that if I could put them in extra big capital letters, I would. Here's one of them. This is the entire essence of part one, right here. Because everything before is being, is being done to get you into Christ. And everything that flows out of this, all the next ten, are as a result of being in Christ. This is what it's about. You must get in Christ. So if we were going to liken it to a, a big tower here, okay, and all these arrows are hitting you. You know, the enemy just has you in his sights. But there's this tower here with, I mean, 10 foot thick walls. And, and God's like, uh, why didn't you get in the tower? Like, I'm not exactly sure. I think I can fight them off on my own. Get in the tower. This is salvation right here. In Isaiah 61, it's called the robe of righteousness. It's called the garment of salvation. It's actually a covering. In Ephesians 6, it's called the armor of God. It's the shield, it's the defense, it's the covering of God upon us. We must be in God. And the way I liken it to Ellerslie students is I talk about two laws, the law of gravity and the law of aerodynamics. And I say the law of gravity will keep you down. There is only one thing that can trump it, and it's the law of aerodynamics. However, if you're at an airport, and there's a nice plane sitting there on the runway, you can, if, if I asked you the question, do you believe that plane can defeat the law of gravity? You could say, I do believe it. However, you're not in the plane. And so, and there you are, you know, esteeming the plane. And guess what? Esteeming the plane doesn't cause you to get any lift. And so as a result, when the plane takes off, there you are on the ground cheering for it, singing praise songs about it, and your life is still on the ground. And so that gets a little disconcerting after a while because you read the Bible, it's like, I'm supposed to be flying here. I'm supposed to be demonstrating a new life. Uh, it's not working. I'm looking at the plane. I'm loving the plane. I'm singing songs about the plane. You know, I'm proclaiming to others that that plane can do it. Why is it not working for me? And so then you get the bright idea of climbing on top of the plane. And you're like hugging the plane. And you're like, okay, this is, this is a new idea. I think this could work. Plane takes off. What happens to you? It doesn't work to be outside the plane, holding onto the plane. There's a secret to entering in to the power of the law of aerodynamics. And that's to get inside the plane. And when you are inside the plane, the law of aerodynamics now has rulership over your life, and you are dead to the law of gravity. The law of gravity is still there outside the plane. However, you are dead to it. It no longer has control over your life. This is the secret that unlocks the grandeur of Christianity. You enter into Jesus Christ. All things are made new. Everything changes. This is it. You must get inside of him, and it's actually not that complicated. He has a robe of righteousness, which means the way a man ought to be, he was. The perfect fulfillment of the law of God, he has lived it. He was spotless without blemish. The only way to get into the presence of the Father is you must be righteous, perfectly righteous, pure, and holy. And unless you are, you can't come to the Father. So what does he do? He holds out himself, his life, and he says, come on in. And if you come into me as your refuge, if you come into me as your shield of salvation, if you come into me, I will do the work for you. 
It's his work. It's not ours. Our job is to simply believe. That's all we do. We say, okay. And we step inside of Jesus and all things change in our life. If you have never stepped into Christ, if you have never let him surround you, cover you, if you have never let his righteousness be your bulwark and shield of defense, when the enemy comes at you and attempts to accuse you, you literally have his righteousness now. There is no accusation that can be held against you, no sin, no fault that can be held against you because you are in Christ. In the appendices, appendix B, I go through what the blood accomplished in an exhaustive list scripturally of what the blood accomplished. I tell you what, it's one of the most exciting lists. I'm just gonna give you an overview here because this is deep stuff. We could spend a lot of time just on this. I have a message called In Christ. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Is that true about you? Is it true that all things are new for you? That old things are passed away. You know those old behavior patterns, those old attitudes that you've had, those old propensities that you've had? Is that altered? Because that's what happens when you enter into Christ, and I'll explain why. But this is a fact. The Word of God is a truth-telling book. Not one lie in the entire pages of it. And that's a fact right there. When you are in Christ, all things become new. So, here's just a short list of what happens in Christ. He forgives you. Well, that's not a bad attribute. You know, that life that you have lived, and you could say, well, you know, my life is a little worse than I think you're thinking right now in your reference. It doesn't matter. The amazing thing about Christ's righteousness and his bloodshed is that there is no sin that he cannot wash clean. No sin! It is an amazing reality that when we enter in, he cleanses us, he washes us, he purifies us, he forgives us. In whom, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. I put Jesus in, by the way, there. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. He washes us. You know that filth that we've had in our life? It's just like a stink in our existence. And it, it follows us around. Like, what's that one character in Charlie Brown that uh, has the dirt cloud around him? Pigpen? Uh-huh, that's us, okay? And the blood of Jesus, when we come into Christ, we're washed. We're cleaned. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. He gets rid of all our guilt. You see, we don't have to just be forgiven, but then we have to lug around the guilt of it. Doesn't it seem a little, like, doesn't it seem only right that we could at least maintain the guilt of our offense and he could forgive us of the eternal consequence of it? But he actually purges our conscience. He removes the guilt so that the enemy can no longer harass us on that point. In fact, he removes it as far as the east is from the west. He separates it from us. He remembers it no more. And he says, please follow suit. If I'm not remembering it, you remember it no, no longer either. Oh, this is good stuff. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? He protects you. One of the ways that I always say is when you enter into this tower, the strong tower known as Jesus Christ, that means that for something, anything of the enemy to get to you, do you know that it has to get through him first? 
Can you name anything in all heaven or hell or earth that can get through Jesus? Could lust get through Jesus? If it can't get through Jesus, it can't get to you. What about fear? Could fear get through Jesus? Was he vulnerable to fear? Pride? Anything! If it can't get through Jesus, it can't get to you. Where are you positioned? Are you outside of Jesus esteeming him or are you inside? Because if you are inside, these quickly become facts in your existence. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. He is the perfect behavior you must have to get to the Father. The requirements to get into the Father's presence are perfection of behavior, perfect righteousness. You must do it all right, every thought and every little action, every little word that comes out of your mouth. If it's not measured against the word of God and its purity to perfection, you cannot enter. Uh, Yeah, and we're all found dumb before such a judgment. We cannot speak on judgment day when we are held before this standard. However, when you're in Christ, you know when you stand at the judgment day who you stand in? Jesus. He is our merit. It's not our own. It's his. And we plea the blood of Jesus. And what is your plea? Him. He did it for me because he so loved me. He died and shed that blood so that I could enter into your presence. Come on in. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. In him. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. It's in him. You must be in him, and then you are made the righteousness of God. It's not your righteousness. It's his. Now, one of the things that we will discuss as this progresses is that Christ clothes us in his righteousness, and underneath it, he's now changing us and making us new. But it's not the merit of our own behavior that earns us the right to enter into the Father's presence. It is the merit of his behavior For all time, in the future, the only hope you have is Jesus. There is not a point where you get righteous enough, and then you can step outside of Jesus and go, thank you for the head start. All right, God, I stand on my own merit now. You can never reach that point of perfection. He is that point of perfection. And so we enter into him, and he's the one that carries us to the Father. And he gets you to the Father through the great minefield, the impossible minefield, Everything that is laid before you would destroy you and blow you to pieces. But when you enter into Jesus Christ, he carries you all the way, past all the barriers of impossibility, to the one place that you do not deserve to be, but he wants you. And that is in the very presence of the Father. He can get you there, but you must get in Christ. Your job is to believe. Your job is to allow Jesus to be your answer and your only answer. Jesus said unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. What we are talking about, what Christianity used to be called before it was called Christianity, it was called the way. Isn't that fascinating? It was called the way. Who's the way? It's Jesus. You might as well have been calling Christianity Jesus. Oh, yeah, that's Jesus. Jesus is the way. He is the only way. And so when we enter into Jesus and we hold on to him and we say, Jesus, you're the only one that can get me there, he gets you there. Okay, now we've laid a foundation. 
When you believe the word of God is true, when you believe the word of God is the word of God, when you believe like God, he cannot lie, that the word of God cannot lie, and you begin to take him at his word, you begin to lay these precepts, these things begin to be established in your soul. And some of the things that God asks of us in this process seem a little strange. It's like you're coming into Christ, you're making this bold new step forward, and God says, confess. What? Confess? What's that? Well, let's read a few scriptures. Whoa. Well, confess our sins. There's a subtitle here. Uh, Our sins are one of them, and then if we're going to go, it's also confess the lordship of Jesus Christ over us. There's actually two things that the Bible prescribes for us to confess. Confession is a statement of the mouth. It's also a demonstration. For instance, baptism is a confession. It's a confession before the heavenlies. So we're supposed to confess our sins. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, most of us would rather jump over this one. There's going to be a few few that I give you that you'd rather just go, you know what, let's keep moving, Eric. I was really excited about this. I liked the thought when you were saying that you're in the tower and nothing can get through it. That was really nice and poetic and romantic. I don't like this one. Confess, you confess. When God begins to awaken you, you know the first thing that happens is light begins to shine into your life. And here's what you think, I'm wrong. Uh Uh-huh, it's okay to be wrong, all of us are. He's right, we're wrong, you're correct. Maybe for the first time in your life, you're correct. And that is that he's right and what you have been doing inside of your existence, inside of your mind and through your life is wrong. And so you make it clear to the body, the way I've been living is wrong. God, you are right, and you confess your sin. You confess it, you get it out, you proclaim it to the heavenlies. Listen, this is wrong, but God is right, and he is rescuing me from this wrong. And then we are to confess our new loyalty. You see, this is an issue of great legality. You know, the word justification is a word that is a legal term, where you are cleared of your responsibility and the penalty that was over you for your crime. Because God took the penalty. But it's a legal transaction. And when you enter into the blood of Christ, Christ's death and the shedding of his blood on your behalf actually becomes appropriated to you. And it's legal. It's a transaction in the heavenlies. Confession is a legal statement. You are literally changing sides. You have been with the enemy. And you are literally choosing to cross that sacred line in the middle of enmity. And you're saying, I'm actually with Jesus. And you jump into a new kingdom. You literally enter into a new kingdom. This confession is like you standing on the street corner before all the heavenlies and saying, I want it to be known. I am no longer with darkness. I'm with Jesus Christ. You know what? Hell isn't too happy about that, and you immediately become a marked man or woman. So who wants to do that? Greater is he that is in you than he that is in this world. You are entering into a greater power, not a weaker one. Now, it wouldn't be a good idea to skip town on Jesus and go hang out with darkness. Not a good idea, because Jesus wins. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. So what, 
This whole process of salvation, we're talking about salvation. We're talking precept upon precept here. I know that I'm expanding it way beyond what most of you have ever thought. We're just getting started, by the way. But the point is, these are important pieces to what God wants to see established in the life and the heart of his saints. And when we obey the word and we come into alignment with it, the truth shall set you free. I guarantee it. We see it this way at Ellerslie all the time. And those of you that are hanging out at Ellerslie know this. Just agree with God. He knows what he's talking about. I know it might seem a little weird. Just do it. And you'll find that when you ally yourself with truth, it works. Because God's truth, he's the one that came up with it. He says, build it according to the pattern. You know what happens when you build it according to the pattern? I don't want to skip to that point yet. Okay, I didn't say that. It's a little bait, though. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwells in him and he in God. Well, you know what? I want that. God dwells in him and he in God. Confess that Jesus is the Son of God. He is. He is who he says he is. I personally testify before the nations, before the heavenlies, that I serve Jesus Christ. Any questions? This is the confession of truth. There's a confession of sin, and then there's a confession of truth. And for whatever reason, it has an impact upon the human soul. We are to forgive. Sorry to do this to you, but we have to. You know, there are people that have deeply hurt your life. And if you do not forgive them, now remember what's happening here. God is forgiving you. But if you don't, in the same stroke, in the movement of soul, reach out and forgive those that have harmed you, You harmed God far more than anyone has harmed you. However, you must receive that grace of forgiveness and immediately extend it. As God has forgiven you, so you forgive others. And I don't care how bad it is, what they've done to you, this is essential for the Christian. You model Jesus Christ, and you are forgiven. Therefore, go and forgive. And there's consequences to this if you don't listen. And when you stand praying, forgive. And if you ought, have ought against any, that your Father also, which is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father, which is in heaven, forgive your trespasses. You guys see any importance to that statement? When we skip these things and we say, oh, God understands. He knows that what was done to me is, is really bad. And I am not responsible to that scripture. Well, then you also will not find life at work in you. Forgive and you shall be forgiven. There's a condition. We don't like conditions. We don't like it to sound that way, but God says it without stuttering. Let's just believe our God and his pattern. He says, I've forgiven you, now go and freely forgive. Go. What you did to me, I have looked over, I have separated it from you, I've purged your conscience and cleansed you. You go and forgive likewise. If there is anything that you have against someone else, You make that right. Renounce. Renounce is like a legal declaration, a dissolving of agreement. You have participated with things in your life that have harmed you, and you have entered into agreement. You wouldn't necessarily call it a contractual or a covenant agreement, but that's exactly what it is. For instance, when you give way to fear and anxiety for the first time, did you know that it's the equivalent of sticking your signature on some legal document and saying, you have access to my life? So what God asks us to do is now make a clear declaration spiritually 
that those things no longer have position here in this body. You renounce any of the deeds of darkness that you have willingly complied to in the past. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And thine ears shall hear, behind thee, hear a word behind thee saying, this is the way, walk ye in it. When you turn to the right hand and when you turn to the left, you will also defile the covering of your images of silver and the ornament of your molded images of gold. You will throw them away as an unclean thing. You will say to them, get away. Now, the context would really help here in Isaiah, but the concept is God is returning to his people. He is showing a kindness. He is restoring them. And in the process, he's saying, you will hear a word behind you and it will direct you in where to go. And in this process, all of those things that you have covenanted with, all those things that have been snares for your soul, you will say to them, get away! I like that. I like this scripture. Because if you hang around Ellerslie, I like statements like that because that's the way I talk to the enemy. Out. No! Out! Get away! Now I have his new line. Get away. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds also. Many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. In other words, this is a lot of burning. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. You see there's a cause effect. The men and women who believed that had been participating in deeds of darkness, things that had literally held their soul in captivity. They renounced it. And they took the, the, the symbols of it and literally piled it up and burned it. It's not necessarily saying we're going to have some big jumbo pile to burn out here uh, after church. But whatever you need to do to remove these things and to renounce these things from your life, you do. And if you need to have a little burn pile, do. Defect. That's not defect. That's defect which means to leave, to literally choose a different side. You must, before the heavenlies, choose who you're going to serve. Like we always talk about, we talk about Saul and David. Saul was the rejected king of Israel, but he had all control of Israel and the military forces in Israel. And if you chose to side with David, you were defecting from the leadership of Saul. And you paid no more homage to it, and you didn't recognize it as the rightful rule. You submitted to David, he was your king, even though he was not recognized as Israel's king. Jesus is not recognized as king of this earth. However, he is. And you choose to defect from the prince of this air, the power of this world. And you say, I'm with Jesus. And as a result, you become the hated and despised on planet earth. You are literally an enemy of the state. The system of this earth is for Lucifer. But the kingdom of heaven is coming. And you are siding with the incoming rightful king. Or as God would say, the better man is coming. Jesus is coming. The last Adam, the mighty conqueror, the king of kings and lord of lords is on his steed. We must defect. Giving thanks unto the Father which has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who has delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. In whom... It's a positional thing. In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Number six, you have just entered into Christ. And so if I'm walking you through this as an individual, for instance, a lot of us have a three-minute conversion process. 
I would propose that it would probably be more realistic to have a three to six hour conversion process. And some of you need to walk through it. You need to go through these things in depth. And sometimes it needs to be personalized from someone on the outside where they literally put your name in the scripture and they walk you through it. It's very powerful. But we have the three-minute little agreement with heaven saying, okay, Jesus, I believe in you. However, we don't usually go through this process, which is what we call at Ellerslie, reckoning with truth. You see, if you enter into Jesus, that means all the merit of his purchase on the cross is available to you, every bit of it. And so where he went, you went 2,000 years ago, even though you're alive today. All of it is available to you in and through faith. And so when you enter into Christ, when he went to that cross, guess what? You went to that cross. Have you ever tried to kill your old man? That's what it's called. That's what Paul calls it, the old man. It's the old you. It's the defiant you. When I'm talking, there's a defiant you that's like, oh, I don't like this guy. There's another part of you that's like, well, maybe we should listen. It's like those two angels. Well, angel and demon. There's two voices at war within you, flesh and spirit. And the spirit is a small voice. It's not been cultivated oftentimes. And the flesh is the loud voice of the old man, self-protecting, self-aggrandizing. It wants to preserve the controls of your life. But the controls of your life must be given over to Jesus Christ. And so when you begin to hear a hard message of the gospel, it says you must die so that Christ can live. Your old man starts shouting. That old man died 2,000 years ago. You can't kill him. The great secret of the gospel is if you get into Christ, Jesus dealt with him. So when you enter into Christ, the strength and the efficacy of Christ's cross work becomes available to you to deal with the old man. And the old man is crucified, as it says in Romans 6. So he goes to the cross, and guess what? You go with him. You literally went to the cross. You must take this as reality. Pick up the $20 bill sitting on the counter. Stick it in your pocket. It's spendable in heaven's currency. It is useful for your soul. And the next time the old man says, hey, let's talk. I have an idea. You say, out of here. You're dead. You have no more power over my life. These are facts, by the way. We at Ellerslie live in them. They're realities to us. The old man is dead. It's a fact. He gets selfish old you, the old man, and brings him to the cross, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. Number seven, he goes to the tomb. You see, he's headed somewhere, by the way. He's on this journey, first to the cross, then to the tomb, then to the, the open grave, so he comes forth and resurrects, then he ascends. Where does he go? He goes to the Father, and that's where he takes you. Who is the way to the Father? Jesus! How does he get you there? By you entering into him, and then he takes you on this great journey and deals with you the way you must be dealt with so that you can come to the Father. He goes to the tomb, and guess what? You're buried with him. He was buried, and so is your old man. You were dealt with. You cannot deal with your old man. I know that that might seem like something you need to personally prove in your experience, but some of you are ripe and ready, and you know you can't get rid of that old man. You've been trying to crucify the old man. You've been trying to pin him to a tree. You cannot kill him. He keeps coming back to life. There is one solution for the flesh and the old man, and that's Jesus. Jesus dealt with him. You must reckon it as so. It's legal paperwork signed by the blood of Jesus himself. You stick it in the old man's face and you say, you're dead. Sorry, I don't listen to you anymore. 
I do not need to heed you. You do not have control over this body anymore. My body has been given to Jesus Christ. He goes to the tomb, and you're buried with him. He buries your old man, your old behavior. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. We are buried. Why? Because we were immersed in him. We entered into him. And now the merits of his work become ours. These are some sub-points underneath uh, being buried. Self-denial. Oh, this is a fun one. But guess what? What I'm about to present to you, when you reckon your old man dead, that voice of the old man is silenced. Just tell it. If that voice starts barking inside of your mind as I'm talking, just say, you're crucified. I don't need to listen to you anymore. Go on, Eric. Keep speaking. I don't need to listen to the old man anymore. Reckon it as true. So many Christians know the verses that say the old man is crucified, but they don't have it in reality because the $20 bill has been sitting over there and they never stuck it in their pocket. You have to have the substance of the promise, the substance of the purchase in your, in your possession. You can't just know about it. Self-denial. And he said to them all, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. As I always liken, the human body is, is like a factory. And the one who controls all the factory machines, which are the members, Paul calls them members, which are your hands, your, your eyes, your mouth, your sexuality, your sleep, your appetite, all the different functions of the human body. They're controlled by the flesh. So the big burly flesh is there and he's controlling the operation. And there you are. You're the director. You're sitting in the director's chair in that nice glassed-in corner office. However, you're chained to the, the chair and you're gagged. You're not in control of your life. The flesh is. The principle of sin is at large. When Jesus deals with the old man, you know what he does? You get untied. And what do you first do? First thing you do is relinquish the operation of Jesus Christ. You die to self. You have a picture of yourself in the entryway to this office, into this, this uh, factory, the big smiling face. Remember the one with the gold tooth of you? You're like smiling. And you come in there and you rip it down, stomp on it, and you stick up a, a picture of Jesus Christ. Now when anyone comes into this life, this life is about Jesus. This operation is his. It's a denial of self. Pour out the spike nard. Remember the, the line about Mary of Bethany? And, it's, and Jesus literally says, I think I have it here, Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached in the whole world, there shall also this, that this woman hath done, be told of a memorial of her. Well, so technically, if we're given the gospel, we need to mention this. Now, here's my take on it. We need to mention the substance, because the substance is the gospel. You know what it is? She took her most valuable possession, the thing that she had confidence and faith in, and she poured it out on Jesus. She took everything in her life, and she poured it out on Jesus. Everything that mattered. The word in the Greek is pastikos. The word that is untranslated in, the, in, the, in, the, in our modern language is pastikos, which means the object of her faith. She had confidence and faith in that spike nard that if all went south, she could cash it in and she would have what she needed for life. And she said, I take all of this and break it out because my faith and my confidence is now in Jesus Christ. This is part of the gospel and this is what God has taken us through. We enter into Jesus Christ. He takes us to the cross. He buries us. We deny self. We pour out our spike nard. <clears throat> and now it starts getting really good. If you thought that was good, he rises again. And guess what? You're in him, which means his life is now your life. You rise with him. 
He gets you all clean and ready for a new man. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Do you believe it? Because saints of God, that's the word of God. I don't care what your experience says. Your experience testifies to the old man being at large within your life. Reckon him dead. He died 2,000 years ago. You just haven't known it. So take God at his word. Reckon it as fact. Hold up the legal paperwork. You enter into Christ and you enter into the full merits of his work. And now you have newness of life. New management comes in. Flesh out. Self off the throne. Self-diminished. And now, guess what? The director's chair is open for Jesus Christ. It is no longer you who live, but Christ who now lives in you. This is the secret of the gospel. God is at large within you, and he's establishing a new regime, a new operation. He goes to the cross, you go to the cross. He goes to the tomb and is buried, you're buried. But then the stone rolls away and he rises again, and so do you to a new life in Christ Jesus. But then, 40 days later, he does a very strange thing. He ascends to go to be with the Father. Have you ever, do you remember the statement when Jesus says, it's better that I go to be with the Father? And we're like, you know, no offense, Jesus, but I think it would be better if you stayed with us. To our natural logic, it would make a lot more sense if he stayed here. But he had a job to do. He had to get to the Father. Why? Because in getting to the Father, did you know that he was taking us there? When we enter into Christ, his death is our death, his burial our burial, his resurrection our resurrection, and then he goes to the Father. Where are you? You're in him. He takes you where you can't go otherwise. He takes you to the throne room of grace. He takes you where all the armament of heaven is made available to you and everything that is needed for life and godliness is set out before you. Even when we were dead in sins has quickened us together with Christ by grace you are saved and has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places. Key grammatical statement. In Christ Jesus. Positionally, where are you right now? You are in Christ. If that is true of you, and if you have entered into Christ, you're in Christ. So therefore, all the merit of his cross work, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension is now available to you. Do you deserve it? No, you didn't deserve anything. None of us deserve these things. This is the astounding reality of what Jesus Christ has done. Does it matter where he's seated? Oh, yes. You see, the right hand of the Father, the right hand in the Hebrew understanding is the hand of authority, dominion, and control. Where is Jesus? He is seated at the right hand of the Father, which means the Father has given him all authority, all position, all dominance over all things. It says in Ephesians that all things are under his feet. There isn't one thing in all of heaven, earth, and hell that is over Jesus Christ's authority. And where are you? You are in him. You are in a commanding position on earth. You are actually in the position, and everything is under your feet. Why? Because everything is under his feet. Don't you realize that you're the body of Christ? That foot of yours is his foot. And 
there is nothing that can rise up above it. You are in Christ Jesus. Do you understand the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because now there is nothing that can push against you. All those petty things that you've been shoved around by in this earth, you now know your position. There's a reason why precept upon precept, upon precept upon precept, and line upon line and line upon line is critical. Because if you get it right, suddenly you understand. Wait a minute. Hey, you enemy, out of here. It's that easy. That enemy can no longer harass you. Number 10. So he arrives in the holy place. Now, where is God seated? He's actually in the temple. He's, he's in the holy of holies. What we have here is an earthly replica of something very heavenly. And there's a veil that separates it. There's a veil, and it's a thick veil. It's, it's purple, red, and blue, which ironically are the symbols of blood and bruises. And Jesus, it literally says that his body was the veil. And when it was broken, the veil also was rent. And there was an opening made for two key things. First, for entrance. Remember part two of this message? And also for the Spirit of God to come out. There's two very significant things that are happening because of Jesus Christ. He enters the Holy of Holies as our great high priest. And look at this little parenthetical statement. You enter with him. Whoa! Only the high priest is allowed into the Holy of Holies. But you're in him. And he's literally taking you in as he's offering his own blood upon the seat, the propitiatorium, the mercy seat. This is extraordinary. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in two from the top to the bottom. And the earth did quake and the rocks rent. That's when Jesus died. The veil in the temple was rent in two. Is this an accident? Remember, we are being built according to a pattern. What is the pattern? The temple. Jesus Christ. He is modeling something here. And that veil is rent inside of us as well. The Spirit of God, the, spirit, the place, the Holy of Holies within us, which was intended to be the dwelling place of Almighty God. We were intended to be a sanctuary. It's dry and dusty and there's been no life in it. But now the veil is rent and the Spirit of God is able to come in. He brings you into the very near and intimate presence of the King of Kings. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he has consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession, for we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. And this is the conclusion of Hebrews 4. Let us, theref let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You come boldly in. Why? Because you're in Christ. You couldn't do that otherwise. You have no place, no right to come into the very holy presence of God. But you're in Christ and you're invited in. He legally adopts you as his child. I don't know if you see how preposterous this whole gospel is. You have, you're not deserving of a bit of it to start with. But you're being asked to come boldly in because you're in Christ. And then he legally adopts you as his child. 
Even so, it says in Galatians 4, when we were children, we're in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore, thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. What? You are now an heir of God through Christ. An heir, which means you receive all that he has. All his wealth, all his riches, all of his person is made available to you. What? Are you staggered yet? This is extraordinary. Number 11. He sits down as king of kings at the right hand of the father. He makes available to you his own personal inheritance. In Ephesians 1, it says, The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us word who believe. According to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and has put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. Number 12, this is key. You must reckon with this gospel truth. We always liken it to a banquet in the back room that you can't smell, see, or taste. However, if God says there's a banquet in the back room and you're sitting here on the step, the question is, if God said it, do you believe it? And you can say, well, I don't, I don't smell it. I don't see it. I don't taste it. Yeah, but God said it. He promised. If God promises, it's true. All of these things are true. Every single thing that's been mentioned is just basic, factual God revelation. And he says, I have an abundance for you. All of this is made available. I don't care about your experience. Your experience testifies the opposite of this. It testifies to a Christian defeat. I believe God more than I do your experience. No offense against you, but I trust my God. And since I've personally discovered all of this in such an amazing measure, it's sort of hard to talk me out of my position. Because I got up and I believed my God. And guess what? As I took some steps, I started to smell it. Ah! I smell it! And then as I rounded the bend, I saw it. And then as I got close, I tasted it. Some of you are still sitting on the step, but you're esteeming and singing worship songs about a banquet in the back. My encouragement is that you reckon it. That means get up. Start moving towards it. When you first start moving towards it, you may not see it. You may not smell it. You may not taste it. But as you walk, guess what? The smell will waft beneath your nose and you will smell it because it's real. You have to move towards it. That's what faith is. Faith is not waiting for the buffet table. Faith is not waiting for God to spoon feed you. He says, rise up and believe me. Do you believe your God? Then take him at his word. You must reckon with this gospel truth. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Number 13, you must present and yield your body. And this is a huge highlight one. If I was going to highlight some of these in here, I would say get in Christ. And I would say you are dead to the flesh and to the old man. And I would say you are, uh, you are now risen to newness of life. These are things I would want you to definitely understand, that you are now seated with him in a heavenly place. And this one, 
you must present and yield your body. This is the end conclusion of Paul in Romans 6 when he says, first of all, you must know it. Then you must reckon it. Then you must present your body unto God. It's the equivalent of throwing open the doors on your factory, your body, and saying, come on in, God. Come on in. I yield to you. You come in and take what is rightfully yours. And guess what? It is very hard to do that as long as the old man is alive. Because the number one thing inside of you that will counsel you against turning over your body to Jesus Christ is what just died on the cross 2,000 years ago. You reckon it true? This is like a knife through soft butter. There's no hindrance. The only thing that's been hindering you from radically giving your, your life to Jesus Christ is the old man. The old man's dealt with. You're free. Start rejoicing and present and yield your body as your first offering unto God. Yield or present yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Now this body is an instrument of righteousness. It was an instrument of sin. Now it's an instrument of righteousness. Why? Because the flesh is no longer in control of it. Jesus is. And he's very good at taking care of the human body. He knows how to do it, but we must give it to him. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Paul's argument in Romans, by the way, he's continuing this argument all through Romans. Hey, it's only reasonable. You give God what he purchased on the cross. He purchased you. He purchased your body. Give it to him. This is your reasonable service. Number 14, let not sin reign. Let me read the scripture and then I'll comment. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, as you should obey it in the lust thereof. You try and do that with the old man still at the helm and it's a joke. That's modern Christianity. We're attempting to let not sin reign in our mortal body and we are pitiful at it because sin is stronger than our desire to be freed from sin. We're controlled by sin. It's not the other way around. And that's why when the old man dies and you rise to newness of life and new management in Jesus Christ, God says, let not sin Therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Makes it sound so easy. And ironically, you can now do this. You know what let not means? It's a term for king. It's kingly dominance over your body. You are now in a position to yield to the Spirit of God. And this hand is under your jurisdiction. These eyes are under your jurisdiction. This mouth, this tongue is under your jurisdiction. And you command it into obedience to the will of God. You take every thought captive. You do not get pushed around by the flesh anymore. Now you push your body around. And you say, you will obey. Yeah, we're going to fast today, buddy. Uh-huh. And I don't want to listen to anything you have to say about it. Yeah, we're going to stay up tonight and pray. I know you're tired. Buck up. You tell your body what it's going to do. You have authority because the Spirit of God is ruling you, and you now rule your body. Christianity. Number 15, be baptized in water. This is merely an outer statement of an inner reality. This isn't what saves you. This is the declaration that all of that culminates into. When you have died in Christ, because water represents two things, cleansing and death. You are cleansed in Christ, and your old man, the husk of the old you and the sin disposition is left behind. And now you're raised to newness of life. Praise God. This is exciting stuff. And that's number 15. And as they were on their way, they came unto a certain water, and the Enoch said, Here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Part two, boy. Uh, 
Here's what I'm going to do here. I'm going to attempt to go through this as quickly as possible because this is like all part of one message, yet it's a doozy of one. Part two, the way of the Father to us. Jesus takes us to the Father, but why did he take us to the Father? He didn't just get us to the Father so that we can, you know, enjoy a little fellowship with the Father. We get to enjoy fellowship for eternity. That's a wonderful thing, but there's a job to do down here. There is a kingdom that must be brought from heaven to earth. So positionally, you are seated in Christ Jesus. But where is Christ Jesus? He's seated in you. It's the great mystery of the gospel. It's the great mystery of godliness, is that you are in Christ, and yet Christ is in you. And that is the operative power by which you now live. So getting into Christ in order that Christ can get into us. This isn't as long as it looks. It's just a whole bunch. I had to write Chronicles twice because this is right at the end of 1 Chronicles into 2. This is extremely powerful. Then David gave to Solomon, his son, the pattern. A pattern is being handed down from David to his son. For what? For building the temple of God. The pattern of all that he had by the Spirit. So David had this pattern by the Spirit. And now he has passed it along to his son. All this, said David, the Lord made me understand in writing by his hand upon me, even all the works of this pattern. There's a pattern here. And it's being inherited by Solomon so that Solomon can build a temple according to a pattern. This all, and then this is a conclusion. We're all the way in 2 Chronicles 5 now. So Solomon has been building the temple, taking all this time to do it, and now, boom, it's done. Thus all the work that Solomon made for the house of the Lord was finished. And the priests brought in the ark of the covenant of the Lord unto this place, to the oracle of the house, into the most holy place, even under the wings of the cherubim. So when the temple is finished, when it is built according to pattern, what is the natural result? What's the first thing that the priests bring in? The Ark of Covenant. They bring in the power of God. Many of you in here have been struggling because you want life. You, need, you know you need more. You have something, but you know you need more. The secret to the more is having the correct pattern. When it is built correctly and you follow through with just obedience to God's word, there is no obstruction and no abutment to God moving in. You want God to have you. You want God to move in. There is no hesitation on his part. He delights to do this, but he cannot honor something that is not according to his pattern. So he is asking you to come into agreement with his pattern so that he can come in. And so he is correcting us in the baptism of water. He is correcting us when we're immersed in Christ and the old man is being dealt with and the new management is coming in and he is cleansing us and he is washing us and he is purifying us. He's redeeming everything. He's getting what is rightfully his. And he brings us unto the Father where everything that is now needed is made available. Everything for life and godliness, which ironically is himself. Everything that is needed is Jesus. And so we come into Jesus to get to the Father, and then Jesus comes into us to make life work. So, and the priest brought in the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord unto his place, to the oracle of the house, even unto the most holy place, even unto the wings of the cherubims. And it came to pass, as the trumpeters and singers were as one, to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music, and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, and for his mercy endures forever... Okay, by the way, this is our response to part one. 
trumpets and cymbals. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. He's done a good work. He's made all things new. He set us free from the bondage of sin so that we can now live unto Jesus Christ. And so we're clanging our cymbals and blowing our trumpets. And in comes the Ark of Covenant. That then the house was filled with a cloud, even the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister by reason of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of God. This is built right. And when it's built right, God comes in. Has the cloud of glory rested upon your life? You know when it does. You cannot stand in its presence. When the cloud of glory comes upon the temple, which is the house of the Lord, do you not know that you are that house? When the cloud of glory comes, we fall down. We cannot stand in such a presence, for the living God has entered. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may also be. And whither I go, you know. And the way you know, Thomas said unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goes, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way the truth and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. And I will pray the Father and he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it sees him not, neither knows him. But you know him for he dwells with you and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world sees me no more but you see me because I live. You shall also live. And in that day you shall know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. You see, this is very purposeful grammar. Jesus is in the Father. That was his great secret. He was baptized in the Father. And he only did that which the Father was doing. He only spoke that which the Father was speaking. And now we are to be baptized in Christ. And new management, the control of our life, is Jesus. And the secret is that it brings us to the Father, and then he can enter into us. I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. Jesus has gone to the Father so that he can get the Spirit of God to you. This is his great cross work. This all is a part of it, precept upon precept, but when you enter into Christ, you go to the Father, and then the promise of the Father is made available to you. Receiving the life of God, the Holy Spirit, three key actions of the believer's soul. One, we must know the need for more. And he said unto them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Good luck. Good luck trying to fulfill the great commission. You need help. But as he which has called you is holy, so be holy in all manner of conversation because it is written, be ye holy for I am holy. Good luck. Good luck attempting to be as God is. You can't do these things. You need power. You need God. You need Jesus Christ. He did it 2,000 years ago and now he wants to do it again inside of you. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in the lust thereof. You want this operation to work? You need Jesus Christ at the helm. You need new management. And behold, I, Jesus, send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry you in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. There is an endowment of power that the saints of God must have to be able to perform the calling of God on this earth. Number two, you must ask your heavenly Father for the promise. This isn't that complicated. 
I'm going to make a simple statement here. When you build the temple according to the pattern, when you follow the precept upon precept construction of the way God intends to correct the problem in you, the natural result is the Spirit of God entering in. There isn't some labor that you have to do. There isn't some great prayer, this perfect prayer that you must do. There isn't some hitting of yourself and you must feel enough pain before you are ready for it. My simple statement today is everything that Christ purchased is available because of Jesus Christ. He has done the work. You must allow him to correct you according to the pattern. And when you do, when you are corrected, the Ark of Covenant is brought in and a cloud of glory descends. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? Ask. But precept upon precept, you walk through part one. You allow God to correct everything, bring you into accordance, make every wall square according to Jesus Christ. You do what God is asking of you to do, and the natural result is the Ark of Covenant is brought in. Number three, waiting with faith and expectancy, hold on until the promise comes. And being assembled together with them, Jesus commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, you have heard of me. God will certainly come. This is what I want to emphasize. That banquet is back there. You must take your God at his word. Your job is to obey and to believe. It's that simple. He's the one that does the work. But you allow him to correct this, he comes. He will surely come. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. It's a matter of fact. He is where he needed to be to see this shed forth. It is shed forth. It is available to the saints of God. We are meant to be cloud bearers. We must allow God to correct his church according to his word so that he can come and dwell within us in power and in authority and see this world turned upside down once again. The evidence of adoption will be demonstrated. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts crying, Abba, Father. Do you know that he is your father? Because when the spirit of God comes, you know what? There's a spirit that is sent, and you actually begin to recognize that you are adopted. You have a kingly privilege. You have the inheritance of the saints. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit itself bears witness with our spirit. Do you have a spirit within you that is bearing witness with your spirit? That you are the child of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be, that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Christ in you. To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. There's only one hope of glory here on earth, of God being seen accurately, and that is Christ being in you. A vessel first emptied, now filled. But when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting, and there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. 
the gospel. Listen to this scripture in 1 Peter. For Christ also has once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Everything we're just talking about is summarized right here in this one passage. That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. There's your gospel right there. The flesh has been put to death in Christ, and you've been quickened by the Spirit. This is the gospel. Part one meets part two. But don't skip over part one. Don't dance quickly through it. Allow it to fully work within you so that you are made ready to be quickened by the Spirit. Whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, even the mystery which has been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect, look at the grammar, in Christ Jesus. So we, they labored to present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. By the way, this is immediately following the concept of Christ in us, the great mystery hidden for ages and generations. But then Paul stops and he says, so we are laboring that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus, whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. We present them perfect in Christ Jesus. Why? So that Christ can be in them, and that's the hope of glory. And how am I even accomplishing this? That very Christ is working in me to perform it in you. So the gospel works. That's a gospel tear. The end. <laughs> dot, 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 to be continued for the rest of eternity. That's the gospel. There's a lot of ways that we can share the gospel, but I tell you what, I want every single one of you to adopt this message. I want you to adopt it. I want you to lay this out as a basic working template, and if we need to move things around and, and change the order of things according to the word of God, we do it. The word of God is right. A message by Eric is a mere attempt at clarifying the word of God, but the word of God is right, and if this needs to be clarified in a greater degree to the word of God, it will be. Let's set it before God and let him refine this in us. But let him purify the pattern so that we can be ark bearers, so that the cloud of glory can rest upon the church of Jesus Christ again. We need power in this age. Without it, we die. And we, the church of Jesus Christ, need to be saved. How ironic of a statement is that? The old man is controlling the church of Jesus Christ today, and it should not be so. The old man has been dealt with at the cross. There is an opportunity for new management within every single one of us, and I say, let's take it. Let's truly be believers again. We are functioning as unbelievers. The word of God's sitting in front of us, and we honestly don't believe it. This is fact. Fact revealed from heaven to us on earth so that we might live. And if you need to go through three to six hours of going from death unto newness of life, you do it. You lock yourself in a closet if necessary. If you need help, that's what we do here. We love to walk people into newness of life. Some of you just need to sit in on some of the times when we're doing it with people. It is amazing. And we do nothing unusual. We just walk through the same thing you just heard. But we walk through it personalized. 
We walk through it in a way that needs to be walked through for individuals if they're struggling with this. This is life, and you must have it. Let's pray. Holy Father, it doesn't even come close to touching who you are and what you've done. There is so much more. But Lord Jesus, I pray that you would correct us according to your pattern, that you would do whatever is necessary within us, that the King of glory may come in. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Purify your saints. Make us plumb according to your pattern. We need you. We need you the way you intend to be within your body. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.